Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Morning, Janice. Good morning. Good morning, Janice. Good morning to all. Can I ask a question before I forget? Please, yes. Yeah, I'm, I just this morning I've been looking at the, this, the first week broken down into symbols arriving at the wedding. Can you help me organize those days? The wedding is day seven, but there's a day five and the third day. How, yeah. how do those numbers work out? The numbers in the first week, you can't be real dogmatic about it, but the idea is that you got a week. And then the picture in Cana is that it's the seventh day, but of course, in, in the count, it's also it's the third day, getting the resurrection day, so that he's talking about the third day from the Actually, it's the fifth day because they're counting on that day. Some people think that there's double reference there in the numbers, that the Cana is both the seventh day, but the third day from the last day mentioned. Oh, okay. David can probably run that down for us. Golly, I, I think you threw a fastball that just hit me. So. <laughs> So Jim's question was about the, the, the feast at Cain of Galilee. Oh, okay. And I think the, the picture is it's the seventh day of that first week, but it's also the third day from the last day that he mentions. And so it combines, you know, the picture of the resurrection day. And you probably don't want to be dogmatic about any of this. It's just an illusion that a lot of people see there, you know. And if you don't see it, that's fine, too. <laughs> Is that your way, Paul, of saying you can just twist Scripture any way you want? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Everybody else does. I think it is clear that John is doing something with the time. He's echoing things throughout. And so I think to, to not find it, I think, would be to do an injustice to John. But of course, then you could argue how far it goes. Yeah, I suppose you could take it too far. Well, he's, all, he's also doing like, uh, not just like the days, but you know, as you've pointed out, like the days of, you know, the time of day, you know, whenever it's day, things are good. You know, at high, Jesus meets the woman at the well at high noon. Uh, whenever it's night, things are bad. Origin points out that directions are important in the Gospel of John so that when Jesus goes up onto the mountain, he comes down into the, you know, so, so these directions are uh, also important. So those details I do think are, are, are not superfluous. You know, this is odd for us because we don't read that way, but it's clearly not odd for Paul, who we know is using allegory. And I think we can presume it's not odd for John because he seems to be writing in that fashion. And somebody like Origen, who is as far as a complete theologian, I think Origen is one of the earliest. Obviously, there are people that are before Origen, but he, he's doing something that I think is not unusual for the early church, that they're taking up what I've called a theological reading, a spiritual reading, 
what some would call allegorical. I think allegorical is not exactly right. Some people find this highly offensive. The reason they're offended, they're used to a kind of flat, literal reading. But I think that what's taking place in the, the life of Christ is that the scriptures are coming alive, and we need to look for that. That's what he's saying about himself. And is it possible that John didn't necessarily sit down with a little outline and say, I'm going to use the threes and I'm going to use the seven days? But I mean, obviously, the Spirit of God could be giving us these mirrors and echoes so that, you know, those who are open to the Spirit will, will someday see what he's doing. I think it is Spirit-led, and I think we have to believe that. But I also think that we, we cannot dismiss the sophistication of someone like John. I think it shines forth in his use of the Greek. It, you know, what we're kind of staring into this thing, I think here is someone who has deep literary sophistication. And we're not, again, we're not used to reading that back into these guys because maybe we don't tend to, to be that. He is able in, you know, if John is the writer of the epistles and the writer of the book of Revelation, uh, certainly he's spirit-led, and I think we, we should expect coherence in that, but I also think he's very sophisticated. Simple, you know, simple is hard. Yeah. And yet very deep, very profound, and very Jewish. And so John is just saturated in this Jewish understanding. I can't remember if it's Bear that said, you know, it, we, some people think, oh, that he was probably not an eyewitness because of his theological approach. Bear's, it wasn't Bear, but some Bear's quoting somebody. No, it's precisely because he was an eyewitness that he's gone back now and, and seen the significance of these events that have been now made clear to him that in our in the in modern age we're we live in a kind of flat world you know in the language of charles taylor has been disenchanted we're materialists we're materialists yeah we're, we're just kind of all trained that's kind of even for us you know the, that we would like not to be that way i think that's kind of our natural inclination you know, what's interesting, Paul, at least for me, is um, I remember when I first became a Christian, I was going to a church that they'd have like um, a mural. We, we went to one of our sister churches in another town, and they had this mural of, you know, how Revelation was unfolding, right? And they had this picture of, you know, what was going to happen. And, you know, and at that time, that was in the 80s. And that was Russia and China and, you know, the United States and all, all that uh, stuff going on there. I pushed myself so far away from that. I mean, that was my early Christian experience. And then as I began to kind of hopefully grow in my faith, um, I pushed myself away, away from some of that. But I think I pushed myself away from seeing nothing but a straight line reading, right? You know, then now I was reading it through uh, my uh, my Greek mindset, right, of, of sorts. What's really been helpful maybe over the last few years is, is that the way Scripture was written was not, you know, I'm doing a study through Daniel with our church right now, and I'm, I'm just, 
blown away that uh, you have to read what the author intended and not not what I think that the author intended, which, so that's the beautiful thing that I've seen. Go back to scripture. You know, you go through um, like the gospel of Matthew and uh, you see the whole Exodus story unfold in the first four or five chapters. And coincidence? No, that was how the author, um, the way that, that I was taught to read the Bible uh, was wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I like your I like your story there because my story is the same that I remember as a kid, you know, I, it was not actually a Christian church. It was a, to, I was in, involved with various Pentecostal groups, mainly because of the girls, but this preacher got up, he had this huge chart, you know, and he laid it out and man, it was complicated. And I think sometimes we think, oh, here's the deep things of scripture. No, I, I think it's what you're describing. In other words, they want to, they're trying to align the dates, you know, oh, that, you know, when I was a kid, it was Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. Uh, the, you know, it was always somebody that uh, liked that. I said, well, I mean, that sounds right. <laughs> you think they got that one right? <laughs> there is a kind of flaky thing that is still flat and literal, even though they're caught up into, you know, finding prophecy. And so what, what we're describing, it's hard to articulate, but it is this multidimensional encounter that Jesus is going to talk about, that he talks about, I'm from above, that to see God in Christ, that's already to see with spiritual eyes. That's to see things in a different way. And so that's kind of the topic this week, and that is this week we're talking about the trial. But when we're talking about the trial, what are we talking about? Well, in some people's estimate, the whole book of John is an extended trial. And this is uh, Andrew Lincoln has done a lot. His stuff is quite interesting. He actually goes through, I didn't, I put this down in a footnote, but he goes through, he just does a vocabulary count that's kind of boring, but it makes the point he uses the language of testimony. Isn't Andrew Lincoln the guy who played uh, Rick in The Walking Dead? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> same guy. He's theologian actor. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. You always come up with the most obscure references. In this, I didn't put this in, but, you know, the term witness or testimony is used 14 times. It's like they're in twice in this, and I don't remember the exact count. So that it's there significantly in John. To testify is there 33 times. Mm -hmm. And again, it's just there a few times in the synoptics. To judge is there 19 times. Mm -hmm. And of course, even the word truth but really what we're talking about is a, a determination of truth in a kind of forensic setting. That is the... On three, I mean, he talks about he doesn't come to condemn the world, so there's that language. Right? Yeah, a lot of judgment language. That, and, and it kind of goes back and forth, you know, that I didn't come to judge the world, but the whole world will be judged by my word. And so the, the language is that of the courtroom even if you don't buy this what is taking place in john 19 you know when pilate comes out and it says that he seated somebody on the seat of judgment 
it's unclear in John who sits in the seat of judgment. We have alternative manuscripts on this that just explicitly say Jesus was set in the seat of judgment. Now, even if that's not true, that seems to be Pilate's inclination. That is, there is the mockery, but the mockery itself is making Jesus as king. And it seems like Pilate is not being just ironic in this, in that he insists that this is placed in three languages on the cross, the king of the Jews. And they come and they say, well, you should have said he called himself the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. And Pilate refuses to make any kind of judgment. Who judges? Well, a king is the judge. The king is the rightful judge. Even if we don't imagine that Pilate gets that, that's what seems to be being conveyed. And do we believe as Christians that Christ is the true judge? Well, of course, that's the teaching in John. And where is this judgment taking place? Well, what Jesus is going to indicate and this, is, this gets into the echoing of Isaiah. That is that throughout John, what is being echoed is the trial scenes of God and Israel in the book of Isaiah. You know, it starts out in Isaiah that God is in the dock, or God is on trial. But of course, that quickly flips around into when, in which Israel is on trial. And I think that's what's happening in the trial of Jesus. Who's on trial? Well, it seems like Jesus is being tried in a, in a human court, you know, the Jews and the Romans. But, of course, judgment is being passed, but it's the judgment of Christ that is being passed. In other words, what they're doing to him is bringing on judgment. Now, that may make your skin crawl a little bit, because I think we have the wrong word for judgment. In other words, we have the wrong concept of judgment. You understand that God's judgment, God's justice, is not simply condemnation, but God's judgment is salvific. That's what saves us. And so when we talk about the judgment linked to Christ, th this is the way Jesus is going to talk about his word. And this is the way God talks in Isaiah, that there is a legal proceeding. It's obvious in John that the trial of Jesus is an extended trial. Something strange is happening in the trial. And throughout, then, there are the echoes of Isaiah. God declares in Isaiah, let all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they are right. Isn't that precisely what's happening in the trial of Jesus? Who's on trial? Well, God in Christ is on trial. Who's trying him? Well, Rome is representative of the entire world, the Gentile world, and Israel is representative of the other half of the world in this sense, so that the whole world stands against him. And at the same time, you know, in Isaiah 43.10, it says, that Israel is supposed to be on the side of God. But even in Isaiah, they fail. And of course, in the trial of Jesus, 
they're the accusers. And then in Isaiah, the, the language is, this is where the servant appears. And of course, we think this is a messianic reference to Jesus. So in this trial, let me pose this to you as a question. What is the point of the trial? What's being proven? What's the main thing that will come out in the trial or in the book of John? Is it truth? Okay, what is truth? Is that what you mean? Yeah. But what is the primary truth claim that's being made? Jesus is God. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it. That I am. But see, that's also the truth claim in Isaiah. It's exact the exact language that I am he. In Isaiah 43.10, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor there will be will there be one anyone after me. And the picture is that in Isaiah, that Israel is to know this, and they're supposed to believe it, and that's precisely the wording that Jesus uses when he makes one of the strongest ego a me statements in John eight that I am before Abraham was. And it says in 8.24, he talks about belief in 8.24, and then in 8.28, he talks about their knowledge. And okay, you should know and you should believe. I think it's a clear echoing, because it's also a restatement of what's said in Isaiah, that I am he. And that's why they, you know, did the Jews get the reference? Oh, apparently so, because then they try to kill him. Uh, that's when they would pick up stones to kill him. But the interesting thing, of course, in 8.28, he also says that they're going to understand this when the judgment is passed. But what judgment? When I am lifted up, what judgment is that? Well, that seems to be, you know, on the surface, human judgment of Jesus. But of course, what's happening is that's a precisely a reversal that it's God's judgment, but it's a salvific judgment, that when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, which is strange language. You know, what is the universality of the gospel? It's this lifting up, but it's precisely here the language of the Septuagint. You know, this is the odd thing that's taking place, that in his betrayal, in his arrest, in his death, is the point of glory. You know, that's John discounts down the hour. But we actually see that, you know, uh, when Judas comes out and kisses him, Jesus says, what do you want? They said, we're seeking Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, I am he. Direct quote from Isaiah, reference to Yahweh. And what ha- what do they do? Fall on their faces. They- <laughs> so apparently it's more than... It's me. When he says it, they are bowled over because it seems to be a clear ego a me statement, and they and and just in the way it's self-evident, uh, it's a kind of theophany. But maybe maybe theophany even is not a strong enough word here. But in Isaiah and then in John, the significance of this I am he. You know, throughout John, it's salvific. I am the life. I am the living water. I am the bread. Just life is there many, many times. And in Isaiah, it says that apart from me, there is no Savior. 
it, it says that there is only one who is revealed and saved and proclaimed, I, I am not another, not some foreign god. And then Isaiah, you know, talks about, well, the Jews, you've, wor- you've wearied me with your sin. You've not shown gratitude. But in 43.25, still, I, even I, am the one who wipes away your transgressions. And so in both trials, the trial in Isaiah, or just the trial that is the book of John, what the judgment amounts to is salvation. That here is the clear distinguishing between darkness and light. In Isaiah, it says, comfort, O comfort my people, speak kindly to to Jerusalem, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sin. And this is then declared in in 45 to extend to all nations, that all peoples will be brought into the salvation. And so I think that's what's happening in John is that, yes, here is a, a, a trial in which humankind, it's a kind of cosmic combat or a trial in which two cosmic forces are up and against one another, the one being the cosmos of darkness, and of course the picture is the casting out of Satan, the cosmic order that loves darkness, Uh, the cosmic order. I don't think I'm making any leap here. I think what John is doing and what Paul is doing, they're both describing an attachment to the law. Again, it's not an issue with the law. It's just this picturing the law as an end in and of itself. And that's what Jesus says. You know, Jesus talks about Moses. Well, Moses talked about me. And then he talks about the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath, you know, that the Sabbath is for man. Man is not made for the Sabbath. And then he'll talk about Moses and the Sabbath. And he actually uses the word that the the Sabbath is a tradition. You know, why do they kill Jesus? To protect their temple, to protect Israel, to protect their law. They kill him, imagining that they're bringing about, and what are they doing? They're doing, and John, what they're doing on Isaiah, they're putting God in the dock because they trust in their the law and they don't see anything beyond it they they abandon so that uh, that's kind of the uh, the, jesus describes this that they trust in the flesh they trust in appearances they trust in their own system of truth and judgment they trust in human standards they can't see beyond that and then jesus says i'm from above I'm not from below. I've spoken to you of heavenly things, not of earthly things. Clearly, the trial of Jesus, where they're plucking out his beard, that it's a clear reference, that uh, a depiction of the oppression that is put upon Christ, that's right there in the trial scenes of Isaiah that are reflected then in John, in Isaiah 53. And the conclusion to the matter is that this is, Andrew Lincoln describes it, that Jesus is the agent of God's judgment, his claim upon the world, and that claim is now depicted in terms of God's salvific judgment through which Jesus, as its unique agent, inaugurates life or eternal life. And that's just echoed throughout. Can you give us the uh, title of that book, Andrew Lincoln? It is Truth on Trial, 
the lawsuit motif in the fourth gospel. I am not actually quoting from his book. I am quoting from a more recent article that is called A Life of Jesus as Testimony, The Divine Courtroom and the Gospel of John. I would suggest that just like you mentioned, we misinterpret the meaning of judgment. I think similarly, we we misinterpret and have been led to misinterpret the meaning of condemnation or condemn. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily that we are being condemned. I think Jesus's death and then resurrection is condemning the lie of sin, the lie that death is final, the lie that everything that he has said and done doesn't mean anything. You know, he's, he's condemning the lie, the, the cosmic darkness that you were talking about, everything that, that's contained in that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. The, the, you know, there are many places in scripture that we often think of uh, God's purging as if it's merely punishment. But of course, the, the picture is that it's cleansing. You know, in 1 Corinthians 3, mm-hmm. is it that there's the picture of a cleansing fire? Well, maybe that's the fire that we're going through now. And what we're being cleansed of is sin and death. In other words, punishment for punishment's sake, as we have it through John Calvin, I think is a misunderstanding. God doesn't just enjoy punishing, but the idea is there's discipline. That's the picture in Hebrews, or there's cleansing, there's purging, and that's the imagery. And the sentence isn't necess- is different than condemnation. You know, to condemn is to say guilty. You've been found guilty. But that does not at all indicate what the sentence is. The sentence could be amnesty. The sentence could be anything. So we're condemned. We're found guilty. But that does not mean punishment. That's good. That's good. And actually, that works out in the details in Paul's letters, but here in John. You know, the people that stand condemned, I'll use that word. Well, actually, they're the ones that are being saved. Right. That's true in Galatians. You know, the, the picture is a kind of Paul describes those condemned. That includes him. In other words, it includes the Galatians. The idea is not if you're pronounced guilty, that that means, oh, the the story over. No, salvation is precisely for those that are falling under this condemnation, whatever that might be, which actually is part of our discussion. We did this Tuesday night, but Dave, uh, I'll ask you, is Judas, this is one of the questions, is Judas beyond salvation? I felt like that was a trick question. I, I tried to go back in the reading. Um, we all made it, we all decided, so you'll see if you agree. No, oh, God. We didn't really. <laughs> so the question is, is he beyond sal- salvation? Or what's the question again? Is Judas beyond being saved? <laughs> well, I think there's a couple ways you can look at it. I'm going to say no, he's not beyond being saved but I'm certain that's the wrong answer. Why are you? <laughs> that kind of ties in with my question, which yes. we, we hinted at and we kind of skirted around, but I didn't want to send us down a rabbit trail. But to me, it seems like, and maybe I'm the only one who has this harebrained theory. You can tell me if anyone else thinks this way, that there's a difference between sinners and the wicked. In my reading of Bible and what, what I always saw before church got in and 
distorted the way I read things. Uh, we're all sinners. You know, every single person sins. But I look at how Jesus treated sinners. He was very compassionate and gracious and forgiving. He came to deal with sin, to take away the sin of the world. But I think that that's something different than from wickedness. The wicked are those who love their sin, who become aware of it. And instead of accepting the grace and forgiveness of God, they're like Satan. You know, Satan did not fall for a lie. He isn't just a sinner. He's the author of lies. So he is, in fact, wicked. He enjoys death and destruction and cruelty and oppression and things that we don't even want to think about that happen in this world. So, I mean, I, I, while I tend to sometimes think universalism would be the ideal thing, what would glorify God more than for no one to have to die? On the other hand, I sometimes think there's a separation that all sinners, you know, we who have succumbed to many, many, many lies and done, yes, wicked things, but not like the wicked, those who actually, you know, as some of the Psalms talk about, they wake up every morning thinking about when they can next shed blood. I just think there's a difference between that kind of wickedness and your average person who just, you know, falls for the lie. He's afraid of dying. He wants to protect himself. He wants to, you know, and so he's led into doing all kinds of harmful things to himself and others. But honestly, most of the people I know who, who I don't, most of the people I know are not desperately wicked. They don't enjoy hurting others. But I do know of some who, who are. I think that's right, Janice. I, um, I, you know, I've been doing this big study on origin and just trying to read through his entire corpus. And he, he says that, you know, you have to look at every, he says that the Holy Spirit is not superfluous in his usage of words, you know, so every word in the scripture is purposefully, you know, selected. And so he looks at the Septuagint, he looks at the Hebrew, and he looks at the different ways that the words are used. But he says that if you really want to know uh, what, how words are being used to look through the scriptures and see then how wicked, you know, look at the kings who were called wicked, for instance, in Israel, or look at the, you know, the, in other words, look at that word and do a study and compare, you know, how sinners are talked about and compare how the wicked are talked about in the scriptures, you know, and, and he says to do that with every, with everything, you know, he says, you know, my wife and I were looking at the passage the other day about the fig tree, you know, that Jesus curses. And so origin would say, yeah, you know, go, if you want to know what that parable means, go through in the scriptures and look how the Holy spirit uses the fig and you'll have insight into that, uh, you know, into that particular parable, but that's just how the entire scriptures are. And so origin says, look at the, you know, all the names of things mean, something you know so he says like the holy spirit could care less about telling us under what tree abraham uh, abraham literally stood like that doesn't have any purpose for us right to know some sort of name that was used thousands of years ago for a particular tree but for uh, a spiritual reading you know to look at that look at what the tree's called look at you know what does midianite mean you know what do the amorites mean what are those you know those different kings balak and you know uh look at all that stuff and and then look at how the like specific words are being used and then it's, it'll help us to understand how like exactly what you're describing that there's different that that, that there really are sort of different usages 
um, of all types of, of different things. I mean, origin even looks and says, you know, look at whatever the prepositions that the Holy Spirit uses, or if there's a definite article or not, you know, or uh, uh, things like that. So he, he has this saying, you know, above all, uh, attend above all else, the reading of the scriptures, because of these reasons that you're talking about, it helps to give us different insights into uh, how the Holy Spirit is, is because like Paul was saying earlier, that all scripture is God breathed and is useful for instruction. And so we might look at a book like Numbers and go, what's this? How am I going to use this? You know what I mean? This is, what do I care about? You know, uh, the name of this bush or the name of this tree or the name of this desert or whatever, like this doesn't have any application. And origin says, well, that's because you're, you're not reading in the way that the Holy spirit wants us to, to read. But if you, if you do the hard work and do the study and stuff like that, you'll see that it has, um, an infinite depth of meaning. In, in this discussion, I think we need to say two things, Janice, and you're bringing it out. I think there's a full acknowledgement of a kind of radical evil in the Bible, that we encounter real sociopaths, real killers, people that, you know, if you saw them, you, you'd just want to run the other way. And, you know, if you, you certainly wouldn't want to sit by them on the, I always think of the train in Tokyo, you know, <laughs> there's some people you just want to get up and move. Because, you know, oh, these are dangerous people. We, we may be lucky enough not to come across those people very often, but we know they're out there. In other words, the, the truly wicked, people that delight in evil. And so I think, you know, being from Kansas and being kind of simple-minded, I would wish, I would like to think, oh, that's not true. But of course, we all know that, no, there, there is real evil, there is real wickedness. And I think as Christians, we cannot hesitate. In other words, I think that we have, we should have the most developed sense of this reality of evil. I think that many people may use the word and not have uh, a full sense. You know, this is what this is the genius of somebody like Dostoevsky. You know, here is the most, the wrong word here wonderful description of evil. No, it's terrible. And he's actually using real case histories. He's not making this stuff up mm. when he describes evil. There's no one who describes evil better than Dostoevsky, the Christian. In other words, when we talk about Judas or his potential salvation, I'm always afraid that part of the danger in this discussion is kind of positing a universal light universalism, I mean, you know, kind of the let's hold hands when we cross the street, let's drink milk and eat cookies and, and go to heaven. Who is the guy? I can't remember. He, you know, everything I needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. The Unitarian minister wrote that years ago. In other words, that, oh, the world is kind of this puppy dog land. We know, we know that there's real evil, and I think we have to confront that. And I don't, we don't necessarily have to resolve what... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What, what happens to these people or how does it happen? So I don't mind saying two things that I can't fit together. Is it possible for Judas to be saved? And is that there in the scripture? I think that that, that was kind of my point with Judas is it is precisely Judas's problem that all the disciples seem to share in that, you know, that's there in the foot washing, you know, that you're, you're clean, but not all of you. And then he starts washing their feet, and that's the, you know, Judas betrays him at that point. The sin that they're not clean of is the sin of Judas. 
I think that's the implication. I mean, I did pick up on that in the um, in your reading. Uh, the obvious answer that uh, I put, the obvious answer for me that I had put down was that, yes, he could be saved. Um, but obvi- obviously, um, because if he couldn't, neither could the others maybe, right? Unless, but they they were as as they were as they went through Jesus as eventually they're they're cleansed through Jesus i was also wondering and i don't know if this dynamic and i didn't know if this is a little bit of what you were reaching for or not is in the calvinist sense judas couldn't be saved he was set to be evil and that's it he's uh, not one of the elect he's one of the others right right you know that judas was evil i mean he he was a sinner he sinned, but I, I don't think there's any indication that we can know for sure that it was from evil intent. I mean, again, I would classify the the young men who are indoctrinated and misled into picking up guns and murdering innocent men, women, and children. They aren't necessarily evil. They are, they might be doing that from you know from believing lies. So they're murderers but they're not necessarily evil. There's a huge difference between that kind of murder and a person who just enjoys torturing and killing and slaughtering and, you know, I don't think. I might have to, I have to ponder it some because you brought up a good thing. I'm just for the sake of, uh, I haven't thought through everything you're saying right now, but I do think it is evil. I do think they are evil. I mean, I understand the distinction you're trying to make. And so I got to, I, I, by the way, what you've said, I've got to wrestle through this because I, I get it. I, I get, um, <laughs> I get that maybe there's different levels of evil. I, I mean, the difficulty, right, is, is uh, let's, let's say the kid that goes in and uh, just butchers, you know, 21 kids. I remember when I, I used to work with guys uh, dealing with or uh, doing drugs and stuff like that. We kind of had a halfway house at our church. Every single one of those guys didn't in the sixth grade say, man, I just can't wait till I screw up my life and I become an evil person. But they, they took small steps and those small steps, right, led, you know, to a point where they're like, golly, I'm doing evil things. But they didn't mean it. So I guess my pushback is, is if we don't call it evil, I'm not sure what we can call it. By the way, I'm, I'm not convinced of what I'm saying yet. Right. No, me either. It's a theory. Yeah. Let, let me pose the question that we're asking, and I, I won't put, give the answer. The question we're asking is, is there radical evil? And by radical, you know, the, the things that we're describing uh, is that people are, maybe they, they become evil with good intent, you know, uh, that through other things. Or I think actually a lot of what we're describing is evil is stupid. Now, we don't normally think that way. You know, normally evil is quite interesting and brilliant. And But what I think if nothing else that we've learned in the Trump era, evil is stupid. But I mean that clear across. You know, I think Hitler is an example of the same thing. Here's a, here's a really stupid guy. Does that mean he wasn't diabolical? No, I, in other words, I think that sometimes we imagine evil with a kind of brilliance. So when we talk about a radical evil, you know, this is kind of the diabolical figure that can just do evil for pure evil's sake. I think that's the question. Is there such a thing as a radical evil? Well, I do think that there is such a thing as a, as a radical evil, 
I was wondering earlier, whenever you were describing, I think that you're obviously bringing out something in um, St. John's gospel that he's doing there with the, with the law court, uh, you know, motif. I was also wondering if anyone had done any work, uh, you know, of course that's, that can become, or historically became more of a Western sort of, uh, uh, right. Like sort of understanding that primarily then God is in the business of the law court. That that the you know that the judge that the role of judge is kind of like the primary office possibly right theologically when we talk about why did Christ come to you know to either make people guilty or not people or to declare people guilty or not guilty but I would first of all bring that into question and say well is that the is that the primary role of the ministry of Christ the primary office of Christ. Is, is God ultimately, at the end of the day, interested in sorting out by, you know, determining whether people are guilty or not guilty, uh, you know, the creatures that he has created? Maybe, but I would also ask, and it's an open question, that has anyone done any work, maybe in the Gospel of John, as a, using like the hospital, as a motif or as you know the the healing in other words what we said before is that i think that really the the point of john's gospel is to teach us uh that the salvation you know what you you asked in one of the other classes what is john's soteriology you know and it's like well i i think that it's at the end of the day divinization or theosis and that is that yes there's radical evil but of course that's not god didn't create that radical evil he didn't make it and it's not even a thing i guess like in a proper sense right because what makes evil evil it doesn't properly exist because if it had proper existence it would be good and it would be analogous then to god and so i'm just wondering if you know what god is in the god's it's, in other words the question that's above all this is well who who is god and it's like yes of course god is a, is a judge and yes, of course, Christ is is the judge, uh, but I also think that you know he he's the physician, and that that work is just as important to his purposes as justice, right? And because the whole thing in John that's going on is that yeah, but this whole law court system is corrupt. The whole thing is the, I mean you know it's a sham. Human justice and the human ways of doing justice are not in accord with God's ways. You know, because God's justice, I, I think, is remedial. So it's not just throwing someone in the prison and into the dungeon, into solitary confinement like we do out in Florence ADX, out in Colorado, for a tall eternity. But the, for God, his punishments or his chastisements are always for our correction, that they're remedial, that they have a good in mind for us, that, that God is a good father. He, he's not just... now. This is my understanding. Again, I'm open to correction here or a different opinion, but God, throughout the scriptures, calls things evil, you know, condemns the wicked, sentences them, you know, but, but there's also the other side of the story that, that when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, I mean, there's a lot of language also in the New Testament that we need to consider. And even in John's gospel that I think that, yeah, I'm guilty. I've, I've, you know, there's radical evil in my heart still, you know, even if you're a Christian and you're a follower of Christ, there's a process of purging 
and of growth and sanctification. And we recognize our guilt and we repent of it, you know? And in as much as we repent of it, we experience healing. And so we all know, though, that there's people who are recalcitrant, unrepentant, as Janice said, you know, wicked, evildoers who, who don't care about this thing that we're talking about, right? But does, the, does that negate the, the purposes of God? Or is God's arm not, uh, is, is God's arm unable to save? Is man's wickedness, even our worst wickedness, in any way commensurate? with the infinite goodness and patience and mercy of God. I, I mean, for me, I don't think so. You know, as radical as evil is, I think God's goodness and grace and mercy and love is even more radical. <laughs> That's my, my hope, you know, is that I, this is why I brought up the George McDonald quote the other day in class. It's that, well, I just assume that, you know, that, that God's mercy endures forever. Somehow, even that word that you use, you know, judgment, creases, there's different Greek words there for judgment, you know, but that most of the time, it's my understanding that those words uh, connote remedial chastisement, that it's for the good of the criminal. Yeah, I think that's the idea that judgment is salvific. There is such thing. Back to Janice, maybe 20 minutes ago, you, you were talking about the, the judgment on the lie or the judgment of the lie versus people. I agree, agree with that, but I was reaching out, maybe unpack that, like, and, and my question is, where is the location of the lie, or what, is, what are its dimensions, or where can we say it has an identity so that, or such that, it compelled Christ to uh, pass through that experience of the passion? That, yeah. That's the best way I can put it. I don't know if yeah. it came across. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a, it's a good question. To what extent does this lie have a hold, have a grip? Yeah. In this, I tend to be dark. Matt may be lighter than I am. I, I think that what is being described in John is there's a cosmic order bound by a lie. Not God's good creation, but this cosmic order made up of the Romans, made up of Israel, made up, you know, the participants all are partaking of the same problem, and I think it's this deception. What is the nature of the deception? It's that in some way they have within themselves or in their religion or in their law or in their nationalism a resource that is enduring and eternal. That is, it's a form of idolatry that implicitly or explicitly displaces God. They would kill Jesus for their religion, for their law, for their God, whatever that is. And so it, to my mind, this lie has a grip on us. That doesn't mean that in a lie there's not truth. Even the devil can quote scripture yeah. so that there are truths that cohere or inhere in the lie. Now, this is kind of a dark picture of the world, but I, I think that's what is why do we need the light? Why do we need revelation? I think it is because we are captured by this deception. And that's not to say there's not truth and goodness and beauty and that we, we can't have an appreciation of it, but even those things can be twisted 
such that they also inhere in a deception. It takes any variety of forms. It's almost formless. Yeah, I, I think it, it is pervasive. And, yeah. and, and it has an infinite variety of manifestations. Of course, we can't put it in a box. I guess I was just chasing this idea down a little bit. And I would agree that we can't, we can't be the judge. I mean, we can't distinguish necessarily between a sinful person who has succumbed to the lies of Satan, who will someday see the light and repent of it, versus the truly wicked who has joined forces with Satan, who loves wickedness, who delights in destruction and torture and death. I just think they're two different people. And Matt, you said you have that kind of evil in you. I don't believe it, personally. I don't believe any one of us here do. I just think there is a huge difference between having sin and selfishness and and the ability to do the wrong thing versus the ability to do a deliberately, consciously destructive, knowingly evil thing to hurt another person just for the sake of hurting them. I think there's two different, two different things, and only God can judge. Paul, you mentioned over a few evenings, one place it's found is in, I'll call it the gray zone, where there's systemic, it's something systemic, the gray zone, it's, it's um, just passing the idea of handing over, just following along, going along. It's definitely there. Yeah, yeah that's the, the word, you know, there. And I'm not claiming I completely, you know, the, the didomy or the giving up that they handed him over. Uh, the picture is of, of a kind of fate that the law is absolute. You just hand, you know, think powers are there. That's kind of karma or you know, in the East, that there, things are just the way they are, and you can just hand things over. And of course, what Christ is doing in his own, in his own giving is a counterforce. And so I think that our tendency is to imagine that the laws of the universe, the laws of the world, the whatever we imagine the law is, rather, and we may call that God. See, that's the strange thing, that we may have confused who God is with this force. I think what Christ is doing is saying, no, who God is, is beyond this, this thing. Absolutely. God judges and condemns evil. I just don't think that that's the end of the story right? for John, you know? And so even people always, you know, use the example of Hitler. It's like, well, that's a good example. I, and no one, I don't think no, no serious, um, hopeful universalist thinks that Hitler will be saved as Hitler, right? At qua Hitler, right? It's like, well, he'll have to be changed. He'll have to be purged and changed into something else. <laughs> He's become something uncreated. Yeah, that we become subhuman, and right. I think we all feel that Hitler. We've so demonized, and I'm afraid that's what we would do with Judas. And I think that was kind of our discussion: is that we can so demonize characters like this that we read the New Testament and say, man, those are the bad guys, and we don't identify ourselves with the problem that they are participating in. And of course, all of the disciples in the other synoptics, when Jesus says, somebody's going to betray me, they all look, you know, they say, is it, is it me, Lord? You know, or is there, they're all they seem capable and imagine that apparently that they are capable of doing that. So I think that we can demonize or put this thing off. But of course, the, the way that we've described it, I think, is the way that evil 
in the normal world functions. And that is that, you know, we just have to do evil, right, to, for the greater good. We know that, you know, as good Americans, that uh, when Jack Bauer on 24 captures that, that bad guy, obviously he's going to have to torture him to get him to confess. I mean, right? We all agree that a uh, little torture here and there. And, of course, the reality is the United States, uh, that they literally voted in waterboarding and torture. Uh, evil is necessary that the good may abound. And I think this is the entry point into evil, that we do evil for the good. We fight the wars for the peace. We do the torturing to find out, you know, the information. So that that is stupid evil, right? I, you know, I don't know if that's the right category, but, but we're kind of drawn into it. And the question is if whether there is this radical evil. In the end, I think there are people who imagine, in other words, that itself, that there is radical evil, is, of course, a kind of lie, that evil is an ontological end in and of itself. That doesn't mean that there aren't people that actually function in that lie and are caught up in that lie. But in the end, that's nothing. There's, there's nothing there. The idol is nothing it turns out, no matter what we might invest in that. Did I just confuse everybody? No, I, I that was actually very clarifying. And I, just to say, Matt, I actually will be very happy if, if your opinion turns out to be true. I mean, to me, that's ideal. If the fact that even what we would imagine as the most evil people possible, that they can be cleansed and changed and redeemed. I think that would be a wonderful thing. It's difficult for me to imagine, but obviously God can do more than we can imagine. And, and I mean, do we, and we don't have to, this is maybe a different conversation, but I absolutely think that there's a scriptural warrant. It's not like it's just, you know, I mean, Jesus there said, you know, Matthew says, well, you're <laughs> going to be handed over into the prison and you won't get out until you pay the last penny. That's just one passage, you know, but there's, there's all sorts of hope. And, and I guess for me, a compelling sort of rationale is as well if i as a sinful human being think that that's you know, have that hope or think that that would be the best outcome and if love never fails i'm hoping that that's actually going to be the outcome why would i think something or hope something better than the infinite love of god but i understand and it's like i don't know how it works out either and obviously it would be i think that um a lot of people think of like a cheap universalism right like oh you god's gonna say no big deal you know, forget him. It's like, well, that's definitely not what, you know, the, the fathers who taught the doctrine of Bacchus said. It's like some people, it may take ages and ages for them to be, you know, I was just telling uh, my wife, that what if it's, you know, what if Hitler would have to come to grips with every, you know, six million people that he's killed, their suffering, their, their despair, their pain, all the other people, their family members, their... You know, in other words, what if you have to come to grips with all the evil that you've ever done to understand it, to be able to come to terms in some way with the damage and pain that you've caused? You know what I mean? It's like, boy, that's terrible. That is a terrible, even for just a garden variety center like me, that's a terrible enough process of purgation. But imagine if you're like what Janice is describing as like a wicked 
you know, person who would have to maybe, you know, if you, if you rape a child, for instance, it's like, or many children, it's like, well, what if you have to relive their PTSD? What if you have to, uh, I, I don't know, like you said, I, don't, I have no idea how these things might work themselves out, but hopefully it's going to be a remedial way. And I just think that because God is a good father, you know, a good father punishes or, or corrects for the ultimate good end of his creation. And of course, God, before he created the world, knew all this stuff was going to happen. And so someone like George McDonald says that he has a responsibility to not just judge it, condemn it, uh, but to fix it. Okay. It's heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. I think that's the, maybe the trial of Jesus that what, you know, I think this is what's being determined in this, that the worst thing you could do is probably kill God, right? That's evil. But that's precisely what I think God is conquering in the cross. I can't imagine anything worse. And of course, I guess that all rebellion, all is a, is a kind of, is a partaking of that. So maybe there's an entry into that mystery, you know, that that is the trial of Jesus, that here are the, the forces of the world arrayed against the creator. Uh, I mean, we know that after the trial, we know what the judge says. On the cross, he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Yeah. So, like, this is the other part of it. It's like, well, can anybody really be free? You know, certainly, this isn't freedom, what we're describing. If someone is wicked and hurting people and taking pleasure in other people's pain and all this, well, they've, through their own choice and, and free will, for sure, like, they've enslaved themselves to the devil, uh, but they're, they're slaves. I mean, in what way are they free? In what way are they, when what way do they even understand who they're messing with? You know, it's right. It's like do they really understand uh, who they're messing with. You know what I mean? That they're going to have to face the glorious I am. You know, in, in the judgment. I I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. I think that's right. That's sort of my point. That evil's stupid. And what I mean by that, it is always a uh, uh, an enslavement. You know, think of the white supremacists. Uh, what do you, you know, what's the IQ we're dealing with here? What's the education level? These are people that have been indoctrinated. They have a very, you know, false view. I mean, just, but that's just true of any kind of racism or nationalism. The evils that we're confronted with are always an enslavement. Does that mean the person is not culpable? Well, in some way we give ourselves over to that. So it may be a, uh, a willed ignorance. And I still wonder if there aren't two classes, because I think there are, there are people, there are actual human beings who have joined forces with Satan to perpetuate, you know, racism and white supremacism and, and all sorts of other evils versus the people who are just, again, stupid. They've been indoctrinated. They've been brainwashed. They've been misled. They're deceived. And maybe they're not. Maybe the people who are doing the misleading are also deceived. And so in the end, you know, and if Jesus can say they don't know what they're doing, does that mean no one really understands what we're doing? Yeah, I think that's the question. It, you know, this is Machiavelli, or this is uh, uh, actually I was thinking of the Saad, the Marquis de Saad, from whom we get sadism. He really is an evil god continually seducing and and uh, he spends much of his life in prison but he says you know what is a human being 
uh, one day you're, you're here and the next day you're just, they're just a, a bunch of, uh, maggots that you turn into maggots. So I'm going to follow the Kantian categorical imperative that I'm going to will to be done what I will to be done universally. And what I will is that I pleasure myself to the ultimate extent and that other people then are here for my, my pleasure. In other words, the guy's evil. And he's seen here is a kind of conscious evil person who is almost saying that evil be thou my good. It, is that a real, and I don't have the answer. Is the Marquis de Sade really like that? Are there people that are really that way? Is it a matter that people are enslaved and incapacitated and duped? Well, I think it's both, but, but, but what the point, I think the point I was trying to make is, is that they're sick. That's the other way to talk about it, right? So we could talk about it in terms of guilty. We could talk about it in terms of they've been lied to or deceived or enslaved. But I don't think any of us would argue that they're sick. And so the question is, is, is anybody beyond God's power to heal? I think we're in agreement that, that in Judas, we have this picture that God's redemption is certainly there and meant to be universal. The, the good is greater than the evil. But how that might work out is a mystery. I trust in God and that, that things will be made right. I just don't know, and I, I can't tell you com how completely, which may be unsatisfying. No, it would be foolish if you claimed that you could. And you understand that's the, the arrogance in a theodicy or in that, that people, some people say, oh, yeah, I got this worked out. See, God uses evil, and that's for the, the greater good. It's a soul-making theodicy. And no, I, I don't think. I want answers, Paul. I want them now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, it, I, is everybody satisfied with uh, uh I mean, I'm only, I don't know how many classes I'm away, but, you know, I, I got to I gotta finish. So. <laughs> I think I need to, I'll have to talk to the registrar, but I, aren't you only one class away from reaching the heights of the forging plowshares stratosphere? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm close. I'm close. <laughs> hey, glad we could meet up. Good questions. No answers, but good questions. Well, it's kind of it. All right. Hope to see everybody on Tuesday. All right, we'll see you. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. All right. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.